0: live on a special day with some special guests. Thank you everyone for joining us. Uh, We'll go around the horn here real quick and introduce everybody. Uh, We have Michelle Minton, uh, a senior policy analyst at Reason Foundation. Did I get that right?
1: You got it right.
0: Okay, good. We're off to a good start. Uh, Also, Helen Redmond, uh, founder of the Nicotine Harm Reduction Consultants and a senior editor and multimedia journalist for Filter. Hi, Helen. Thanks for joining us. And of course, Gregory Conley from the American Vaping Associate. Amer- no, 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 no. American Vaping Manufacturers. <laughs> Thank you all for Almost joining us. <laughs> Almost got through it all. Almost um, got through it all. I'll tighten it up here as we go along, I promise. Um, <clears throat> and of course, uh, we're here to talk today about uh, the uh, docu-series on Jewel Big Vape. Uh, and uh, fortunately, we have some some folks who were actually in the production, uh, and and then myself and and Helen to provide our our own commentary and impressions on on how the uh, producers did in, in telling this story. Um, but first, I figured we'd start with with something maybe more fun, uh, and go around and see uh, when. I assume that everybody here has tried Jewel or or maybe used it beyond just trying it, so maybe starting with Michelle, uh, you know, what was um, when did you first encounter Jewel? And what were your first impressions? And, um, you know, how, how has your your how have your thoughts or your opinion on Jewel changed over time?
1: Yeah, so I mean, I actually only tried a Jewel for the first time this year. Uh, And I was, you know, personally, wasn't for me, but that's okay. Uh, But I first encountered Jewel in the office when I got into the city in dc uh, around 2007 uh, i was hanging out with a lot of young libertarians and i was kind of surprised at how many of them smoked how common smoking was and then over the next like four or five years whatever you know they all tried to quit a bunch didn't really work out for most and then this jewel thing started to make its way through the office and slowly every single one of my friends and coworkers, almost all of them quit using jewel a lot of them continued to vape other things you know, they moved on but a few of them didn't quit, but, but I, I, you know, I found that to be amazing. And that was right at the same time as the moral panic had begun. And I was working in consumer product stuff. And I was like, there's no way I just watched all of these people quit smoking using this weird little device. There's no way that it should just be taken off the market immediately. So that's kind of my impression, you know, and then I saw, I kind of, I was like, here's this miracle potentially here. And then we kind of watched the company stumble its way into the tobacco space of its way into realizing that it was a tobacco product, kind of messing a lot of things up along the way. And I think a lot of us kind of had a love-hate relationship with Jewel for a while there.
0: Um, Greg, first first uh, use impressions of Jewel. So
2: my more distinct memory is Plume by Pax or, or what they called uh, their tobacco device that was sold maybe as plume, but they had the joint venture with JTI. I just remember they came to a vape convention and it was still early enough that you didn't have many nice booths. You didn't have booths that cost $50,000 to construct with, with six people coming in the morning to put it up and take it down. And they were there. And I remember that it burned my upper lip. So I was like, ah, you know, probably not the best product, the best design, but something like this could change the world. And it turned out that wasn't the product that was going to change the world. It was Juul. And my first time I saw it were those most mostly those uh, info or rather paid advertorials that got around that were plugging Juul. And I thought it was interesting. And but I don't think I actually tried one until the panic had begun.
0: Hmm. And uh, Helen, uh, did you have any experience with Juul and and what were your thoughts, if any?
3: I I don't vape, so I can't talk about it on that level. But I have a number of friends who did buy Juul and they stopped smoking. So I thought this is so dope and I want more people to get it. Uh, It is just a marvel of design and creativity Uh, It's revolutionary, Uh, we, we realized that from the beginning that this is a game changer. And it made me so happy because at the time I was doing tobacco harm reduction groups with people who use drugs and people with mental health issues. And because it was so easy to use, we were just ecstatic. Like we can really help people make the switch with this product. But it was too expensive. Um, so right away, we kind of realized that um, it's so amazing, yet um, there's, there's some pros and cons here. And then I really got to know and understand Jewel when uh, Greg said the panic, when the hysteria hit. And uh, I wrote a lot of articles in defense of Jewel.
0: Yeah, I, I similarly with the cost thing. I my my first experience with Juul was I think in 2015. I had ordered it online, and that was sort of that first round of first generation of Juuls where it was leaking uh, the the e liquid. Um, but it was immediately uh, again, like you said, it, it it registered as a game changer because it did deliver nicotine in a way I was familiar with from smoking. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had been vaping open system products for two years prior to that. And one of the things that stuck out to me was trying an open system and different uh, devices and coils, um, I, I experienced for the first time in two years that sensation of craving after using Juul. And I, I, I didn't. that's something I didn't want to return to. And mm-hmm. so that's where the cost factor came in was, okay, if I'm going to keep doing this, I'm going to be shelling out 15, 20 bucks for this four pack of pods you know, once or twice a week, that's, I'm not saving the money that I am with the open system. So sort of abandoned it. And I think the only other time that I went out and bought uh, Jewel pods for a couple of days was uh, out of spite when the FDA ran their uh, "poisoned by the barrel full uh, uh, article about nicotine and, and so on. And I think Jewel was somehow implicated in all of that. So um, uh, good. We got the fun stuff out of the way. <laughs> Um, but getting right to it, um, you know, a lot of this, the conversation about Juul uh, really revolves around youth use and and the whole moral panic around this. Uh, and so I figure, uh, Michelle, you're probably in a really good position to do this. Um, one of the things that seems to be lacking in the documentary series was uh, contextualizing the data around youth use. Um, are, are you able to kind of get into to maybe uh the 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 non number heavy explanation of what's actually going on in the data
1: yeah so you know based on the data that we have back in you know i suppose it was around what 2011 is when vaping among youth really started to get first of all just asked as a question on national surveys there's a few national surveys usually they're given during school hours with permission from parents and they ask kids a whole bunch of questions about health you know there's the risk uh, health risk behavior uh, youth survey, and then there's the one that the FDA CDC basically runs, where we get the. For some reason, the FDA likes to rely on those numbers, not the path uh, data, for, for whatever reason. I'm not sure, but you know, generally, all of them have found that there was an uptick in youth vaping, and most of that was the question asked during the last month: Have you used any vaping or e-cigarette product? You know, and so that could mean a kid at a party just taking a hit, just trying it from their friend never doing it again or maybe doing it only at parties and the numbers creeped up and then they hit 2018 epidemic was declared and I think that was when we were around like 30 percent 28 percent of high school kids something like that were reporting that at least once a month they had vaped and you know Scott Gottlieb who was the head of the FDA at the time kind of made the announcement really kicking off the moral panic kind of nationwide and then eventually globally but since then since 2008 2018 the numbers have basically really come down and it was what a lot of us were saying in the beginning that One, this is a fad and kids are curious, especially adolescents, teenagers, they want to try the adult thing. And we're all telling them that this is an adult thing. So, of course, just like cigarettes, just like alcohol, just like drugs, the kids who are prone to experiment with those things at whatever age are going to do that. Uh, And we hope that it would start to creep down. Unfortunately, you know, it stayed pretty high for a while. My contention is specifically because of the moral panic, because of the constant stream of news stories and then all the money being put in from health departments to advertise to kids not to vape you know, with a lot of those DARE program types of things, they can backfire. And that's what I think happened. Uh, but after E-Valley, not related to e-cigarettes, but but scary for people because, you know, people were saying it was related to vaping. And then the pandemic, the numbers have really started to come down among among youth when it comes to vaping. You know, they've dropped 30, 40, 50% some years. And then the context around this that almost never gets talked about in the media and did, didn't really get talked about in this documentary, as far as I can recall, uh, is that youth smoking concurrently with the rise of vaping among youth as a rise in experimentation, youth smoking has plummeted. It's practically unregisterable at this point among, especially among middle school students and then high school students, you know, it's at, it's in, it's below 5%, I believe, among, among youth, which, you know, if you're looking at an entire country is the definition of a smoke-free nation. So if we're looking at these generations, these are functionally smoke-free generations and all the panic about, well, if they try vaping, they're going to end up smoking. That's not happened. That hasn't happened the entire time we've been watching the data is that no matter how high vaping experimentation among youth or even regular use by people under the age of 18, no matter how high that goes, smoking doesn't go alongside up it or it doesn't increase in the few years afterwards, which you might expect if there was any kind of gateway. So that's just the general gist of what we've been seeing in the data with youth.
0: And, and uh, one other thing was, you know, I think they, they sort of gave, you know, uh, Raja uh and uh, some of the anti-groups the floor when it came to making this point about, you know, what the real risk was here. And, and a lot of that was a lot of the fear is based on young people who are not otherwise at risk of picking up a cigarette or any tobacco product, initiating on Juul or another vapor product product and progressing to habitual use. Um, what are the numbers of, of for, for that population, kids who aren't at risk, aren't, weren't using cigarettes or any other tobacco product first, and then started on a, on a vapor product?
1: Based on the most recent numbers that have seen, those numbers are under 1%. Is the, the, the kids who have never used a tobacco product indicating that they might not have any interest in it is, is under 1%. It's basically, it's a, especially if you look at if you separate out use use once use a few times a month or use every day once you get into those multiple time uses or everyday uses there's practically nobody underage is vaping regularly they didn't use some other type of product uh, other type of tobacco product and that doesn't even account for the youth like me you know when i was 13 or whatever and i was like i definitely want to smoke but i'm not dumb and i don't want to get caught by the cops and all this other stuff, but had there, you know, had there been another product that I was fairly confident was safer than smoking, I one hundred percent would have gone to that first. Right. So the, the the diversion of the young people who are gonna engage in some kind of risky or risk taking behavior around substances, it's really hard if they've not used another product. It's really hard to say would they have gone on to the more dangerous combustible products had it not been for this other slightly safer or, or very much safer option for them.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's a good point. I, th- I think, um, you know, we, we've talked about this several times. And, and at some point, I think down the line, we'll be able to come back and have this conversation about the sort of uh, diversionary um, aspects of, of safer nicotine products. Um, certainly, no one is going to market that to young people. But when we when we're looking at the data, I think that's a really important thing to look out for. Um, Alex, and can
3: I just say, say something about mm-hmm? the teens. It was interesting to me, not totally surprising, who they featured in the documentary. So they feature these knucklehead, precocious, white, fairly coming from fairly wealthy families, um, who were heavily dependent on on Jewel. And they're not showing a continuum of young people. And so they're taking what these young people are saying at face value. Like one of the young women says, all, all my friends were doing it. No, all your friends weren't doing it. That, that, you just can't make that statement. Some of your friends were doing it. Uh, at another point, one of the teens says they went to the jewel launch party and uh, she With really her fake liked ID. It. Sorry?
0: With her fake ID.
3: Yes. And she really liked Jewel and she became very dependent. And then she just says casually, yeah, my friends, they didn't like it. Exactly. Not everybody who was exposed to Jewel became heavily dependent on it. And that is a classic uh, trick um, for uh, making sure the hysteria really hits. You only feature people who become heavily dependent on it. So there's that. Then the other thing is they didn't really explore enough the benefits of nicotine uh, for young people. And they're the same as they are for adults. They sort of alluded to it, but attention, energy, focus, um, relief of anxiety or or depression. And young people face all of that. Again, they sort of alluded to it, but they really should have talked more about the benefits because that's why those uh, precocious teenagers really liked Jewel. They liked the effects of the nicotine and they spent way too much time on the junk science. It, it, it um, harms the developing brain. It's as addictive as nicotine. I mean, sorry, nicotine is as addictive as heroin and cocaine. No, it's not. So that, that was a, a problem for me in, in terms of dealing with the, the, teen, the teen issue.
0: And I guess since you kind of broached the topic here, I, I one of the questions I have written down here is, um, you know, when we talk about addiction versus dependence, um, my thoughts are that addiction is is slightly different for for young people in terms of, you know, when 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 using a substance becomes disruptive, uh, and and you know, it, it's not just about health consequences, but when it becomes disruptive to their lives, could you maybe? i mean i think you're you're probably in a better position than i am to talk about this but um is is the definition of addiction different for for people under the age of 18
3: no no it's not um you know the the way when we say addiction we we say um not me but you know addiction authorities that there are negative consequences to it uh you might lose employment. Uh, It affects your health in negative ways. It affects relationships in negative ways. Now, it's not to say their dependents didn't do that, uh, but their whole lives have not been destroyed by their addiction, where their life revolves around um, securing nicotine. And again, there's all these negative consequences, uh, the law, you know involvement with the criminal uh, legal system. i don't I don't want to come off as uh, unsympathetic to young people who are dependent on nicotine be- because I am. But they're not victims. Uh, and I feel like pave and the and the tobacco control, you know it's all victims and villains. And the reality is young people experiment with substances. In our country, that's a normalized experience. They're experimenting with nicotine and alcohol and cannabis. and unfortunately some you know drugs that are much more dangerous than nicotine. So I also want to put that into the to the discussion. Young people experiment with substances. and for me to experiment with nicotine, that's harm reduction than experimenting. And becoming dependent on combustible cigarettes, and that's something that's also not mentioned in the documentary is tobacco harm reduction and why that's so important. And it applies to teenagers, not adult, not just adults.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I hopefully uh, sort of continuing in that vein. Um, you know, I, I I think you're you're sort of making a, a pretty good point here uh, without directly stating it that, you know, a lot of the harm associated with substance use is actually the policies. Uh, and that, you know, what, what some of these kids are experiencing are the result of, uh, you know, act, enforcement actions from the school, uh, discipline from their parents, uh, you know, other th- or, or being involved in the law. I know that we've had high schools calling 911 because a kid was, was vaping in a bathroom things like that. Um, kids have been strip, search, strip searched uh, for possessing these products. Um, but, you know, for, for parents, I understand, you know, I put my parents through, uh, through hell when I was in high school and going through my, my, my issues with substance use. Um, and a lot of it was, you know, this was the early 90s. Uh, you know, my parents didn't understand what substance use was. Uh, they didn't have the tools and the resources. So, you know, now we're, it's been 30 years, what kind of tools and resources are available for parents? Are they new or, or are we still stuck in this, you know, the, the moral, uh, issue of it all, uh, our bodies are temples. We're not supposed to mess with that. Um, are there, are there good resources out there, even if they're, they're small, for parents to, to get involved and and have a, a very human conversation with their kids and and, and, and help them move away from, from substance use that may be problematic. Anyone?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would jump in there, you know, because Helen brought it up, and, and I think you brought it up too, is like, when I think about addiction, especially with kids, this isn't true for everything. Obviously, there's like chemical dependency, but a lot of youth when they, and a lot of adults, when they're when they're gonna go engage with a substance, whether it's illicit or not, there's a million other things that are going on in their body and their life and their like mental health that is gonna lead them to what the item is they choose. Sorry, my dog's under me snoring if you could hear that. Um, <laughs> what substance they choose, you know, that that's a complicated question. But when we just just focus on the substance itself, in this case, you know, nicotine with youth. I think, especially with parents and kids, it, it gets into that blame game and the morality game of like, "Am I to blame as the parent? Are you to blame as the kid? Is this tobacco company to blame? Is Jewel to blame?" Versus actually taught, or and then it's or it just immediately jumps in, "We need to get you off of this," without actually a conversation about why, like, what led the young person into this in the first place. You know, if it's escapism, like with other types of illicit, illicit substances you know, that needs to be dealt with or, or, you know, something that Helen mentioned, if they're actually, whether they know it or not getting some kind of relief or benefit from the nicotine, that's a different conversation. Because in that case, you may not want the kid to get off nicotine or not immediately cause some serious, you know, mental health crisis, but you definitely want to figure that out. But if parents don't have that conversation, if adults don't have that conversation, we're missing why teenagers are experimenting with these products in the first place.
0: Yeah, and I know that um I I can't remember what year it was, um 2017 or 2018. It may have been on in, in the early part of 2019. FDA had a, a listening session uh that was focusing on um basically what resources uh parents would have whether or not therapy medication uh was to give to young people. Um, And I don't know, I I haven't really heard anything further about that discussion, um, but that that seems like an important thing for FDA to continue. um, If in fact, FDA is the the appropriate venue to have that conversation. Um,
3: uh, There's there's a, a moment in the documentary where a mom, her son is heavily dependent on it. I don't know if you guys remember this scene and she writes a letter to Jewel and she's asking Jewel, to help her help her kid, not vape anymore. It's like, hold on a minute. If your if your kid was drinking a lot, would you write a letter to Budweiser or a, a wine company and say it's your job to get me? Now again, I I feel for them, but they're directing this sort of anger, and it's part of the hysteria against Jewel and the reality is people become dependent on substances and then they get off those substances. So there is a way for young people to become undependent, unaddicted, and we can help them taper down. And if they have mental health issues, let's address that. Is there something we can do uh, non-medical for your anxiety? Um, Do you, are you taking too many classes? So you are using this for the energy and attention, right? Um, Are you on Ritalin? Because that's kind of doing the same thing. You know, we're, we're a country of drug users. And I'm very optimistic, having worked with lots of people over the years who use drugs, that you can taper off, you can moderate, there's a lot, there's a continuum of use. And again, the documentary, unfortunately, only shows people who are all the way down the other end of the continuum of use. And that is like heavily dependent and and it, and it is causing them some some harm.
0: Yeah, and I, I think I you know I saw some other people commenting about um, sort of the lack of representation from the independent open side of the industry, uh, and and I think one of the things I've 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 been I've thought about for a while and and spoken about is, you know, with the open system products that sort of made all of this possible. Um, the, that, that ability to step down nicotine concentration was built into the products. Um, but with the closed system products that we're seeing authorized, you're getting just sort of the max nicotine. It's, it's, it's all about that one-to-one sort of experience with a cigarette with no option to step down to lower nicotine content, if that's what your goals are. Um, and I don't know if this is a, a good place for Greg to step in here because it is sort of an industry question, but. Um, I mean, any, any thoughts about that or, or am I just being hysterical about something or is this really uh, one of the consequences of the bottleneck of PMTA?
2: So, yeah, I, I make that point. Um, in fact, that it's not even clear if one of these companies wanted to make a zero milligram product and go through the PMTA process, whether FDA would at the end of the day say we have regulatory authority over that product because it is not intended or expected to be used with nicotine. It's a zero milligram product, unless you're marketing it uh, for people to put nicotine shots in it, uh, they have the argument to say no. Um, And those products could potentially be left out of many of these states that are doing PMTA registries. If they have too broad of a definition of of e-cigarette, well, you're never going to be able to get a zero milligram product. Uh, And that's a shame. However, with a sense of uh, the documentary, I didn't think, I think the treatment of open systems, the treatment of the industry before Juul was largely fine. This was not the documentary on vaping. This was the documentary on Juul. And as much as I love my open system, as much as it helped me quit smoking, when Juul came along, the, the NHIS, the National Health Interview Survey, probably would have had 1.8, between 1.8 and 2.5 million former smokers having vaped in the last 30 days. Uh, we're now with probably the majority of people either using closed systems or disposables. Uh, 6.5 million, I believe, was the number in the 2022 NHIS. So there was sincerely uh, innovative innovation. For lack of a better word, that benefited public health and will continue to public health, be, continue to benefit public health long past the date when the Pritzkers uh, finally sell or close down Jewel.
0: Yeah, um, the 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 uh, proliferation of of uh closed system products and 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 i I think you know the manufacturers finding something that that people are you know it was it was all about finding the device that was going to attract the most people um maybe not as quickly as possible but uh you know convincing people that this was going to be a, a viable substitution for their cigarettes uh and and to see that innovation happen uh while at the same time wishing it had been, wishing FDA would regulate this, this industry better um, to allow for better access. Uh, it's, still, it's still remarkable. And, and certainly there's a lesson in there. Um, and
2: I'll add, wishing that the people who came up with the grand idea that would revolutionize and change the world and convert a billion smokers all around the globe, if they had just spent an extra couple of days looking at the tobacco industry documents library. One of my favorite parts of the documentary, and I highlighted this on my Twitter, was when you had Robert Jackler talking about how they had looked at these industry documents and seen all the, the they copied the marketing plans. And then you cut to the doofus from Jewel uh, who was in the New York times documentary as well, the Hulu one. Um, and he said, Oh, I want to talk about that Smeckler guy or the, the Reckler guy. Um, and he pretty much said in so few words, yeah, we, we, we don't read those documents. Nobody ever read those documents. And I think they also had me saying uh, their mistake was they looked up the documents on how to deliver nicotine better, but they didn't look up any documents about how the industry uh, marketed their products and how they responded to the backlash that came in the eighties and nineties. Had they done that, uh, or had they taken some of my earlier advice that I'd given them in 2017, they uh, there could have been a difference.
0: And hopefully, I, I think you, you broach a good good topic here. Um, uh, I uh, hopefully it's not too much of a stretch to make this connection. But um, talking about marketing brings me to the sort of youth uh, the resistance campaigns, if you will. Uh, and <clears throat> I feel like they they missed a pretty good opportunity here. Um, the it seems like the one campaign that they highlighted was. From Philip Morris USA, it was in the light, late late nineties. Uh, it was called "Think, Don't Smoke." And I actually looked up a couple of videos. Um, Rob Micklehenny, uh, uh, currently of uh, Always Sunny in Philadelphia uh, uh, fame, uh, was was an actor in one of these PSAs. And you know, they 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 seem to show this to try to make this point that that tobacco companies can't do youth prevention. Um, but looking at the ads. They're they're really not bad. They don't seem to come with that, you know, coercive, uh, shaming type of of language that we see from other ads from FDA um, or or CDC or Truth Initiative. Uh, They they sort of talk. They feature young people making their own decisions and saying, you know, I, smoking isn't cool. I don't want to do this. I don't need to smoke to feel like I fit in. It's a very, to me, it, it reads as kind of an empowering message. And as far as I can tell, the only reason to single this out is because it was funded by a tobacco company. Um, but I, I, I don't know if anybody else picked up on that. They, they really seem to miss this opportunity in comparing and contrasting the ads and simply just left it at because tobacco, it's bad.
1: I think what the documentary is actually getting at was that, you know when the tobacco companies were trying to avert just the worst of everything, they they did they spent money on a camp on in school campaigns to like you know convince children not to smoke. And then what researchers found out later was didn't really reduce youth intention to smoke and kind of increase their familiarity with brand, which is like, yeah, if you ran that same study on any of the things public health does in schools around substances with youth, it's the same thing. Like we found this out after, I mean, Dare's still running in some places, I think, but we found out that when you have a cop or somebody else come in and say here kids, here are all the drugs everyone else is doing, but don't you do it. You're too young. Kids go, well, I know you're an authority figure telling me this stuff and now I know what it's called and where to get it. So, uh, you know, like it's, it's just one of those things that's called reactants and kids are very good at picking up. Even if it's coming from the FDA or the principal or whatever, Um, If they're hearing it from an authority figure, they're going to feel some, a lot of youth, especially adolescents are going to feel like their freedom is kind of being infringed on or their autonomy, their ability to say like, well, you can't tell me what to do. And then they're just going to reassert that autonomy by doing the thing you told them not to do. I saw someone in the comments uh, was talking about that, but like one of the tricks that public health has figured out around that is to have youth talking to youth. And I've never seen, if you want to see the best example of a worst PSA from a public health organization is the California public health department's advertisements around vaping, where it's all teenagers, all talking about how all the cool kids do it, even the kids who get straight A's, and just nonstop talking about how they hid it from their parents, how they did it on the bus. Like, this is nothing but an advertisement for how to vape as a kid. Uh, So yeah, you have to be very careful. But from the, the data I saw with those tobacco ones, they did, you know, public health people like Stanton Glantz and everything love to assign a conspiracy theory around it. Like they, you know, this was the intent. The intent was to be a stealth advertisement. Like maybe, you know, maybe that was, maybe they knew, or maybe they just, there's no way to, there's no way to try and tell kids not to do this adult thing when you're an adult. Cause they just hear, I got to do this thing.
0: Yeah. And I, to maybe Helen, did you want to jump in?
3: Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, the, the marketers of Jewel, I mean, they're taking a playbook from every other corporation that's ever tried to market something and they're using sexism, right? All of these young women, beautiful young women, you know, showing lots of flesh, having a great time, men without their shirts on sex sells. And uh, Richard Mumby knows that he's a, he is a vapid uh, horrible person, and uh, the other person who is involved uh, in the in the marketing—they're—they're they're horrible people. They use sexism to sell products and celebrities, right? So you've got Jake Gyllenhaal with his shirt off, holding a vape, holding Jewel, right? So it's not rocket science that that unfortunately people fall fall for that. Uh, I think it was important in the documentary that um bowen and monsies admitted it was a mistake right how many how many startups do that would elon musk ever say something about tesla like we really screwed up we shouldn't have done that they admitted it it wasn't even up for six months they got complaints right away they took them seriously i mean that to me shows that to them the mission of switching smokers to a a, harm-reducing product was still really important to them unfortunately with their angel investors this is capitalism you have to market you've got to get market share so you have to do stuff that sometimes is is unethical and just wrong and so so that for me is uh, you know the documentary really really illustrates the pressure to get this to market and to sell a lot because the angel investors, they want their money back. I wrote about that a little bit in, in the review I wrote for filter. So that's a problem with how things, how, how commodities get to market that you've got to have a marketing campaign. You have the other knuckleheads who are all into in marketing and the documentary saying you only get one chance. And then if you blow it, you know, that's it. Well, no, no, that that shouldn't be uh, how how it goes. And um, uh, Alex, you were saying earlier you wanted to talk about marketing because you were recently in Italy. Is, is that a good time to to drop that into this discussion?
0: Sure. Yeah. I, I, if if I can share my little factoid um, and and full disclosure, I, I just got back from a week long trip to Italy. Um, Philip Morris international, uh, sponsored the trip. Uh, I was there with, I think, uh, 26, 27 other people. Uh, it was an educational, uh, slash, um, you know, let's go see Italy kind of trip. Um, and the point of going to Italy was, uh, first of all in Rome, uh, PMI has their Icos embassy, um, and I'll, I'll get, give you some details in, in, as to what that looks like. And then, um. Uh in Bologna, they have their factory that makes ICOS. Uh fun fact about the factory, it is the largest greenfield site in Italy in 25 years. Uh and it is definitely one, I think, one of the largest factories in all of Europe. Um and uh it's it's pretty it's pretty remarkable facility. Uh they even have a a, a, a building on on the site that is sort of a factory-making factory, making factory uh, where they, uh, they have educational programming uh, related to the innovations that they've employed in their, in their facility. And so other people from other industries can come and learn about that and take that directly back to their manufacturing facilities. Um, so it's, it's all very interesting. But one of the most interesting things that, that I heard on this trip was, Icos has been on sale in, uh, in Italy for seven years. And throughout that time, they don't, they don't there don't print me radio or TV ads for Icos. It has simply been organic word of mouth growth. Uh, and of course, it's important to have alternative products in a place like Italy because, if I remember correctly, smoking prevalence is up around thirty thirty five percent. And it, it was remarkable to walk around and see people using Icos or another heated tobacco product. Um, And and still a lot of smoking going on. Um, And and it is true. You just don't see ads for it. There are um, there's a weird kind of thing with the there's the tobacconist monopoly. So you can go to the ICOS embassy and buy your device, but then you have to go. You can sample the product as well. Uh, But if you want to buy the heat sticks, you have to go to a tobacconist. Uh, And they also have vending machines right there on the street. Uh, so the only thing that really approached advertising that I saw was an Ico sticker on a vending machine on a sidewalk, not in a bar or another age-restricted uh, type of establishment just out there on the street. Um, and I think I, I, their sales of Ico's have reached, I think, 10 billion a year in Italy, uh, if I'm correct about that. Somebody can immediately correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but it's impressive. Uh, and And they did take the 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 slow organic approach, uh, and and the question it, it, that you know comes to my mind, um, and and Greg, maybe you have an insight on this, uh, and maybe even looking at at, at uh, you know the independent side of the industry's marketing behavior uh, over the past you know what fifteen years. Um, you know, is, is this going to be a replicable model for safer nicotine products? Should companies not be marketing these things, uh, and really sticking to, to word of mouth advertising or should, or should they be more aggressive?
2: So I will say with Joule versus PMI, PMI of course had and always will have for the foreseeable future, the advantage of being the incumbent player in a multi, -multi multi-billion dollar market that is quite profitable so if Icos had a bad ad uh or a bad campaign or a bad first year in italy it wasn't the end of the world whereas yes as helen uh mentioned earlier the vcs want their money back um and they may not be able to get more if the first campaign failed and if they felt the need to go and the like cat you may be seeing him in the background um uh, <laughs> uh, But yeah, the the idea of um, slow rolling your release or just putting it out there and letting your consumers, your adult consumers do the advertising for you, that is a model that's going to play out in the future in America uh, as well. But um, things are going to be so different in America because of the PMTA process. There is not going to be the option for these companies to take a product and put it in Denver for nine months and only do a little bit of advertising in Denver and see how the reception is, because you can't get authorization from FDA to just do a test market. And the cost of the PMTA process is so high that you're not going to get a PMTA after waiting five plus years for FDA to to stamp your application and then say, okay, we're going to try this out in Denver for six months. You're going to go full in. Uh, it will be interesting to see with PMI bringing ICOs to America, uh, whether or not they kind of stick to that. Let's just uh, put it out in the market. Let's have some stores. Maybe, I don't know if that's in their plans. And let's see where it goes from there rather than blanket every bar or every subway in America.
0: Yeah, and speaking of PMTA, I, I know that it, it got some uh, – there, there was a some – the timeline seemed to get kind of jumpy in the, in the documentary, um, but I, I left it kind of feeling like they didn't get into some of the finer points of FDA regulation. Um, I don't know if you you guys had an opportunity to, to talk about that, or maybe there were some comments that ended up on the cutting room floor. Um, you it's know, was-
3: super boring. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get real, dude! Come on, the PMTA—it's really, really boring.
2: They used watched- me. Now, they used me to explain the PMTA process. I'm the goof yeah. that gets to say. And then keep in mind this interview was 2021 before the PMTA due date or right after. Uh, I said potentially multi-million. Of course, we now know it is definitely a multi-million dollar process, especially if it's not a tobacco flavor. Uh, but yeah, what would anger me the most about that section was they cut to Mitch Zeller talking about it's on the burden is on the companies to to prove. And they also are showing the graphic from the Nut David Nut Nut study from the UK or focus group where they had all the experts in the room and they assigned the different relative risk to the different tobacco and nicotine products. And they see the giant cigarette uh, bar and then next to it is the tiny little vapor bar. And they never bring up the question, well, if... Mitch Zeller believes and that's not necessarily and I don't think Mitch has ever endorsed that chart. But if Mitch Zeller does believe that a properly regulated vapor product is likely to be 95 percent or more or less hazardous than smoking, then how many adults do you actually need to help quit smoking to cancel out the number of teens who, let's say, 90% of them will never go on to use nicotine if vaping wasn't invented, let's lie. How many people actually need to be successful with the product to weigh that out? That question is probably too broad for a Netflix documentary, but hopefully one or two viewers at home kind of saw that chart and saw all this positive talk from public health people about vaping products and kind of said to themselves, well, how does that make sense?
1: And yeah, the, the documentary also, I don't think, unless I missed it, didn't bring up the fact that cigarettes do not have to go through a PMTA process. You know, they, they were talking, you know, mm-hmm. the documentaries about vaping and they kind of brushed over that. And I know they, they had touched on the, the end where Jules, you know, PMTA is in the process, but they never once, in addition to not mentioning the plummeting youth smoking numbers, they didn't mention the fact that mm-hmm. cigarettes could just I mean, quote, new cigarettes, if they're basically the same as old cigarettes, can just be made and put onto the market without requiring a PMTA. They can just say, look, these other cigarettes on the market and vapes can't do that.
2: No, they didn't. And I went into vivid exhaustive detail on the PMTA process, the SE process, the development of the Tobacco Control Act. Uh, I still have the recording. I probably must have spent like an hour on just explaining the background. And I think there was like, three sentences of it that were used. I was also disappointed. They did not get into the, and I understand why, uh, but the Trump white house meeting, because I told a couple of funny stories relating to that, including when uh, I was entering the room, uh, I was in the white house with Meredith from PAVE and Meredith and I, uh, even though uh, not uh, the greatest uh, friends, we are cordial to each other. I always kind of find it funny to be extremely nice to my enemies and (laughs) as we were entering the presidential room, the executive room of the white house, they just turned to Meredith and I go, did you ever think that you'd be walking in the white house for a meeting with the president? And Meredith just turned to me and smiled and said, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then of course the other one was when Robin Koval and I were next to each other during that meeting, Robin Koval, the now uh, exiting truth initiative head. And I had had our comms firm at the time, AVA's go out that morning and buy two MAGA hats. I'm like, I, I if I'm lucky enough to have Trump walking by, I want the last thing he remembers about that meeting. Cause that's kind of how Trump operates. The last thing, uh, last thing you hear sometimes I want the last thing to be like, Oh yeah, a vaping guy brought a MAGA hat. <laughs> so I had the MAGA hats with me and on the way out. Cause I thankfully was seated in a way where he was passing by me, shook his hand, gave him the MAGA, asked him to sign the MAGA hats. I uh, told him it was a gift. I was missing my girlfriend's sister's wedding for for this, and this would uh, make her dad forgive me. All of that was true. Um, and then Robin Koval proceeded to give President Trump a book. And all <laughs> I could think in my head at the time was like, of all the gifts to give that man, you're giving him a book. Come on, Robin.
1: Unless it's one sentence with his picture on it, every single page, he's not going to read it.
0: Yeah. Right.
1: I mean, I think, Greg, you're, you you
3: you alluded to something that I think be, came through in the documentary and that is the millionaire moms of Manhattan, uh, their reach into the, the, the powerful, um, it, it's, it's real. Uh, there's that, that section in the documentary where she had been, I don't know, out, out on, out in the Hamptons with Chris, uh, Cuomo, the, my good uh, friend, Chris Cuomo. Yeah. And, uh, was talking about the vaping and, and how horrible it was. And, uh, next thing, you know, that week she's on the show with him, uh, putting out all the lies, the lies of omission, all the, all the myths about teens and vaping and nicotine. And so, uh, that, that came through really clearly that PAVE is, is well-funded and well-connected and we're able to carry out along with Truth Initiative and Campaign uh, for Tobacco-Free Kids, a massive drug panic that I'm not even sure it's uh, subsided. I I did zoom into Pave's uh, web conference last uh, week, um, Clear the Vapor, and uh, they still have a lot of the same talking points that are uh, clearly not true. there were two in the documentary that i thought were just laughable meredith berkman at one point she says i'm quite a googler i really i'm I'm a really good googler it's like okay so meredith did you find during your google search public health england all the research that's being done in europe in terms of when people switch to to vaping Um, their asthma improves, cardiovascular benefits. Uh, Did you find any of that when you Google? Because it's all out there. It's 95% safer. Um, Never talks about that. And then Dorian Furman, one of the other leaders of PAVE, just straight up said, there isn't evidence that vaping helps smokers quit. And that's clearly, even if she said it back in 2021, it wasn't true then, it's not true now. So the the millionaire moms of PAVE, I felt came off in the documentary as very unempathic, very cold, clearly very privileged. You know, they live in a world where people don't smoke and they look down on people who smoke. There's a class issue here. And that's why they were so infuriated that their sons uh, started vaping. It's like people like us don't, use nicotine. We, that's for other people, those people over there, poor working class people, people who, who have issues. And uh, I was really pleased to see them real, everything they said was challenged. It was so, yeah. so satisfying to see people from Jewel hit back on their lies yeah, you know,
1: Helen, I was I was with you on that, especially, you know, uh, when Meredith, Meredith Berkman, you know, she said that I'm a good Googler thing, that was funny, and then she said, they just think of us as a bunch of rich white moms, and that, you know, and I was like, but because you are, because you actually, you know, going back to the data, if you look at this, It is mostly of the youth who are experimenting with e-cigarettes and have been, it is mostly white youth. And that's one of the reasons that we had a moral panic. People weren't panicking still about youth smoking because most white youth weren't smoking anymore. But now you have, you know, these prep school boys from Millionaire Moms in Manhattan who are now falling into this lifestyle. And it, their parents are freaking out. It turns out rich white parents have a lot of money and connections to throw around. And this is one of the things when, when you have Michael Bloomberg, the philanthropist who funds PAVE and a lot of other anti-tobacco harm reduction. I'm sure the whole audience is aware of that. But when I see people like PAVE and Michael Bloomberg going into other countries that have smoking rates of 50, 60 percent and dropping you know, millions on the vaping issue to ban vaping, you're like, this is the clearest example of like white prioritization of like prioritizing what you think is important versus what people actually need.
2: So three things uh, quickly. First, the clip of Chris Cuomo and Dorian speaking, that was, I believe the second of three weeks where I was booked on Chris Cuomo's show and he bumped me. And I remember that night suddenly seeing on Twitter that i had been bumped in favor of the Pave mom um the other ones had valid excuses that one uh, that one's pretty much gave me no respect for chris cuomo the second uh yeah the it was no accident that the filmmakers chose to use a line from meredith saying i'm a good googler uh, i think i don't know what their feelings on this issue going into it i don't know how uh sophisticated on the issue rj cutler was if he really knew how black how not black and white this issue was going to be but i think they clearly left the hours and hours and hours of of footage review not thinking particularly highly of the moms Um, Mm -hmm. and you see that on twitter when you look at the reaction when you search the hashtag big vape or big vape in quotes Uh, The reactions kind of are split between F Jewel, those morons trying to kill people. And two, why can't parents parent? I hate these parents. Uh, They're just complaining, blah, blah, blah. Um, Nobody's hating on myself, Michelle or Helen, by the way. Um, One of the benefits of of most of your footage being left on the cutting room floor. Uh, And three, (laughs) another failing of the documentary was the, I believe, complete absence of Michael Bloomberg. Uh, It's just kind of if anyone watched that documentary, you would just assume that, oh, yeah, his uh, Meredith and Dorian, their rich husbands, uh, just cut him a check. And and God knows how much they've self-funded some of this. But the infrastructure that they took advantage of was already built for the past two decades by groups funded by Michael Bloomberg. And and that gets left out, despite Michael Bloomberg uh, to much of the much of the world, I think, being kind of a detestable character, at least one they don't particularly like.
0: Yeah. And I I guess uh, in kind of the closing minutes here, we're going to try to wrap up by uh, four Eastern or or a little bit over. We've got Kristen working the behind the scenes here for us until quarter after. So, um, but uh, you know, in that uh, vein of the, 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 the protesters, that was one of the things I think the jewel employees were talking about going into work and seeing all the protesters outside. And it was of course a, a truth initiative orchestrated demonstration um, and one of the main characters in that, in, in those scenes uh, was a young man, uh, Chance from Miami. I think his last name is Imerita or Imar, Im- I, I can't remember it. Uh, I'll just call him Chance from Miami. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a relatively okay Googler myself. And I remember, uh, first of all, I mean, the, the lead in for this, of course, is this is, this is during the, I think, the fourth episode uh, and they get into the the lung injury cases from 2019. Uh, I refuse to use the acronym that the CDC is promoting uh, so we'll just call them lung injuries um, and and he was one of the the two young people who talked about having a lung issue and um, I, I, this is the pop quiz. Does anybody know what actually happened to chance from Michelle, Michelle, you hit the button. I know
1: because I was, I was following the lung injuries very closely and I ran into a few articles with chance and I figured out, oh, what happened to you is the thing that happens to a lot of young men who happen to be tall and thin, which is that your lung collapsed, his lung collapsed. He didn't have E. valley or lung injury, you know, and, and that should not have been hard, frankly, for the documentarians to figure out, I think, or to even say, like, at least once say that what happened to him was disconnected from this other spat of lung injuries people were saying were related to vaping. Because his happened quite early, at least a few months before the other one started coming out, I think. Either way, they didn't even bother to say... These what they are telling us about their injuries are not confirmed to be related to what they're telling us that they are like, for one thing, they don't know, two, they're not medical professionals and three, they could be making it up that that kid chance. uh, Emirata, I think you had it right. He has apparently made an entire career out of his one collapsed line. He's a social media He's trying to be a social media personality before that happened. And I guess he kind of just spun this into a little career with the Truth Initiative and the whole kind of anti-tobacco complex.
0: Yeah, and in my um, limited Googling uh, skills, I, the, the condition that he experienced is called spontaneous pneumothorax. Uh, and, that's, and as you uh, clearly stated, this is something that affects tall, slender, young white men. Uh, and it is that sort of development. It's, it's the result of, I think, uh, a growth spurt. And uh, this this bubble will form on their lung, and at some point it bursts, and you have a collapsed lung. Um, and and yeah, there was absolutely no contextualization offered for whether or not his injury was actually related to vaping at all. And I do remember. I think there are, are a few more examples of this of people claiming that their their injury was related to vaping. And Greg.
2: But it is kind of uh, amusing that because the documentarians did not see fit to add that notation, now anyone who thinks about what they just saw in that episode is going to walk away thinking, that Chance kid is an idiot. He used a, a weed cartridge off the street and got a volley. Um, because they didn't really distinguish the cases or or do that, you're left with the impression if you if you know this issue or if you at least think about what you just saw and how you had experts saying it wasn't caused by jewel. The only answer, if you don't know that young slender men, thank you for that language, Alex, um, have their uh, lung collapse sometimes. He was lying. He used a list of THC cartridges. Good job, Chance. <laughs>
3: Yeah, I I had such mixed feelings about him. At one point I just wanted to slap him. And that and, and another point I just felt this is a young man who's so vulnerable. He's for me he clearly had some 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 issues and he's being used by these tobacco control organizations, completely used. And at some point I wonder if he's going to do what uh the woman who became very famous in that ad this is your brain on drugs
2: mm. right and, totally cook
3: you know your your brain is is cooked in the pan and smashing it down and uh saying you've you've got to stop abstinence is the only way it was it was just a couple of years ago mm-hmm. she uh talked to somebody in the media and said i um, recant all of that. That was a mistake that I did that I was used in this uh, uh, anti-drug campaign by, by the government. And I don't, I don't believe that. And I'm hoping chance does that. I hope he can redeem himself because he's absolutely being used. He might think he's building a social media profile, but it's built on sand and it's built on lies. And, and I, and I hope, that somebody is looking out for for his mental health uh in the future because he's absolutely being taken advantage of yeah and how- yeah, one, day,
2: one day he'll have a he'll start to have wrinkles form and he'll no longer be useful to the truth initiative the contract will not be renewed and maybe then uh and maybe when friends or family um experience smoking related disease or get off cigarettes because of vaping and their lungs don't collapse because they're not slender young men um, maybe then he will start to think about this issue and uh, probably call up one of us looking for a check.
1: No, I wonder about that. All of those teens who were experimenting with e-cigarettes back in 2012 and 2015, you know, they're they're adults now, and, and um, most of them didn't carry on. They didn't continue to use any form of nicotine after that when they were in high school or whatever. And I wonder where are they in the world what are they thinking what do they think about all of this now because they they were there they lived it and they saw that it wasn't as addictive as heroin whatever that means in people's minds um and i also wonder about the, the Furman and uh, uh meredith's children that they keep trotting out to hearings and wherever like they're they're young men in their mid-20s at this point i think like how can they you know they're not going to make such great um examples when they're in their 30s talking about how when they were in school Jewel sent a representative, which and this is where I get really irritated at Jewel. And I kind of got irritated at the documentary because I was hoping they'd finally answer the question, which is, did this actually happen or not? You know, I've never gotten a good answer. Jewel has never said anything about whether or not they sent somebody. They sent a representative to this school or if this alley person based on what the, you know, the pave youth said. That's what the name was. They said later that it was he was associated with Jewel. And so I have had this question since that story came out. Like, did Jewel do this or not? And why can't we get a clear answer on that? But so it was, like a, a-
2: I know it was a, a contract or some other organization. It was not somebody from Jewel. Um, never have gotten a satisfactory answer as to whether or not Jewel ever investigated the claims, what the person said, talked mm-hmm. to anyone else that of the 25 youth or 20 youth that were in that classroom Um, And then I know you want to wrap things up, but I'll just say that that to me was one of the failings of the documentary. I tried to make that point. I tried to give them a good soundbite or something that they could use, saying you look at companies that get documentaries, Theranos being one, uh, a company that actually put people's life, could have put people's lives at risk Um, or a list, uh, a litany of different companies or people that have done terrible things that have killed people that have changed health that have uh, that have destroyed finances, all the scams uh, and everything else that gets documentaries. And I really would have liked it if rather than focusing on the girl who thinks she's going to continue to jewel for for years to come, maybe if they just did a man on man on the street kind of interviews, finding people who did vape in 2018, 2019. And hell, it's it's 2022, 2023, and, and they're still standing and they don't really care. I think that would have been a more fitting end to the documentary is to say maybe this was uh, a little overbone, overhyped. There's some credibility to the complaints. But ultimately, uh, this wasn't the end of the world. And nobody really died. No, and I
3: was really furious that they gave Mitch Zeller the last word, right, where he says it's Jules' fault. They blew it up. We were going in a great direction, and it's all on them. And it's like, that is such bullshit, Mitch Zeller. You and Scott Gottlieb jumped on the hysteria bandwagon and made sure that Jewel was attacked in, in every state, that the litigation you know trying to ban- bankrupt them i mean the fact that mitch i cannot even stand to hear that guy talk he's so arrogant he's so full of himself he's a he's a horrible person he he stabbed us in the back he stabbed tobacco harm reduction um the whole, our movement in the back along with Gottlieb, leaving that 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 guy gets the last word and that it was Jules' fault. They they blew it up. No, no, Mitch Zeller, you blew it up. You are responsible for so much of what happened. And that he comes off as like this kind of like, I know everything, and I I really cared. I mean that just that just made me sick. I I I wish that ended up on the, on the floor. And they had just gone out onto the street and talked to people who were using this. The, that it actually saves people's lives. You know, tobacco harm reduction, that that was uh, that was hard to to see him in the end. It's like, no.
2: Yeah, those of us who went to the Bill Godshaw School of Tobacco Harm Reduction knew from 2010, 2011 that Mitch Zeller was never going to be a friend and the fact that he tried to ban flavors in the original Deeming Reg, for instance, shows he was never a friend of tobacco harm reduction. Uh, and I'll also say another disappointment. Uh, they're, they're, I know you, it's, they didn't want to show their hand that all their footage was two years old, but I would have loved if the documentary had ended with a note. Mitch Zeller is now uh, consulting or on the board for a company that is trying to compete with vaping products with the pharmaceutical. Oh, and that Stanton Glantz Uh, had a paper forcibly retracted and has left UCSF in the cloud of two sexual harassment lawsuits, which by the way, um, I think they chose him for the documentary uh, and interviewed him when all that was public minus the retraction, maybe even Mm -hmm. the retraction. Um, And I'll also just on a note, uh, since this should end with a note about Jewel. imagine how vapid you have to be in 2018 to be working for Jewel. And to think, we have this new technology we're developing. Let's go talk to Stanton Glantz about it. <laughs> Maybe if we just show Stanton Glantz that we're taking this seriously, that that he'll, he'll lay off. For God's sakes, people. That is why in 2017, I was telling Adam, this person that I know, uh, who's still in the industry and doing very well, uh, he or she... Should join your company. Yes, the person worked for the tobacco industry, but this person knows what they're doing and can pinpoint all the bad things you're doing that have been tried and failed before. Um, And uh, that's in, I think that sentence made it into the book, but not into the documentary. But overall, uh, since we're talking about the documentary, overall, I was pleased that it was not as bad as it could have been. There are many areas of improvement, but I still think there will be a good amount of people who will see it and say, maybe this thing isn't going to make my lung fall out. Maybe this thing isn't going to make my dad's lung fall out. We just got to keep it away from kids. Um, I think maybe people will separate out the youth from the adult issue.
3: And I've seen a lot on social media from people who have watched it, who have said, I didn't didn't know what PAVE did. I didn't know about this whole other side. So I'm confident people are going to understand uh, what what really happened. I feel like it's fairly balanced. There's blind spots, it's Netflix, what are you gonna do? But somebody who worked used to work for the Intercept, the Intercept wrote a, a really bad article about Jewel years ago. And now he's come coming out and saying, I just can't believe that that happened, that that hysteria. And for those of us, Michelle, I think you 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 were you saw it, and Greg, you absolutely saw it. I mean, we witnessed that hysteria in real time, and it was enormously frustrating. You know, at, at Filter, we were like, "What can we do? You know, how can we?" It's like, "Can you stop a hysteria?" Uh, we were just beside ourselves. You know, my editor, Will Godfrey, we talked constantly. Here's the latest thing about Juul. Here's the latest thing. What what can we do? It was like a juggernaut, and we couldn't stop it. And we knew the really um, enormously negative consequences it was going to have, uh, because right, all of the the polls were saying, um, well, we're t- with smokers. Like, well, no, vaping is more dangerous than smoking. I'm not. I'm not going to switch. I mean, the real live consequences of that hysteria we're still feeling them today and that just makes me furious right more people would have switched if they hadn't engaged in the attack on Juul more people would be switched if they hadn't done that and that was a choice that drug panic was a choice which the FDA went along with and helped uh to make that go on and on and on and on. I just wanted to put that in there for people that we lived through that, you know. I I've been writing about the drug war for decades and and I I know about the the drug panics around cannabis and and heroin, and we lived through one um, for a legal drug, nicotine, and it was horrifying.
1: And it was particularly difficult in this case because it was and you know, the FDA and other you know, groups really tied vaping so heavily. Every time vaping was mentioned, Juul was mentioned for a few years there. So it really became synonymous with vaping. And, you know, if you're, what you want to do when there's a moral panic getting started, you don't necessarily want to stop people from questioning it, but you want to bring it back down into the realm of actual conversation. But once the Jewel panic really began, once the vaping panic began, you couldn't provide any counter facts or, or any kind of like sane argument where you wouldn't get in response. Well, you're just a show for Joel. You just want kids to vape. And it became this like really difficult, impossible. I, like you said, I kind of started to think the same way. Like once a moral panic starts rolling, is there any way to stop it? But for people begin to see the harmful effects of a drug war again, we, we seem to need to see it every time to avert it for some reason. But yeah, I would say the same with the documentary, you know, it's, a, Netflix documentaries, for episodes, they can't get too deep on everything, but I thought overall they did try and create balance, and I think intentionally or unintentionally, one of the best things that the documentary does do for people who aren't aware of all this stuff going on, is it does introduce them to the idea that there is a, that it is a, a there's a moral weight to this conversation, and always has been around vaping, and that, that you have these two sides whether it's Juul versus Pave or tobacco harm reduction versus, you know, tobacco control. There's a very passionate people on both sides and a lot of bias, frankly. Well, let's be honest, mostly on the one side of that of that thing. Um, And, you know, we're talking about you can see it in the documentary, the way people who worked at Juul would talk about big tobacco. There was such a stigma that you know, I, I, ima- I imagine that the, the founders, even if they wanted to get the knowledge and the innovation and the experience from people like Greg mentioned, who were working in or had worked for the tobacco industry, it was just so toxic, they wouldn't touch it. And now they're trying to do the same thing with vaping. And they're, frankly, they've been doing a fairly decent job so far of demonizing vaping. First, it was douchey, now it's killing kids. And you know, now it's just another arm of capitalism trying to steal from your wallet and addict you for life or whatever. But I, hopefully the documentary people watching that it'll clarify how, how much money is being thrown around in this debate and where some of the people on the other side are coming from, whether that's moral parental panic or some other kind of interest.
0: Yeah. And I, I know we're, we're kind of going around, uh, wrapping up with final thoughts and, and I would, uh, you know, also, uh, uh, ask you know, if there were any other things that, that any of you felt were left out of this, um, out of the documentary. Uh, I think you made the great point. You know It's four episodes. There's, there's a limit to how deep they're going to go into this. Um, and one of the things that, that stuck out to me um, was uh, the, this idea of the Master Settlement 2.0. Uh, and, and certainly they featured states AGs who had successfully sued Jewel but didn't really mention, and I don't think it takes a whole lot of time to get into this, but I think it was the Public Health Law Center was actually very open and public about the fact that they were pursuing some sort of master settlement agreement style uh, settlement for for, for Juul. Uh, and then, of course, uh, you know, that would ultimately include any other vapor company that comes onto the scene and wants to sell based on how the states treat that Um, and so again, it, I, I almost want to you know get to the tinfoil hat of this, uh, which is not that far from the truth that that you know sort of every aspect of the opposition to vaping and and all of the the anti-vaping stuff is to some extent orchestrated uh, in 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 search of you know a bunch of rent seeking lawyers out there who uh, you know are really just looking for a paycheck. Um, so anyway, that was I, I agree with a lot of the other assessments. This was a fairly balanced look at at the issue. Uh, and, and recommend the documentary to anybody. Um, but certainly, as we've been discussing, there were things that were uh, left out that may have made this a much richer coverage of, of, of the issue. Uh, and Greg, you're the only one who hasn't, hasn't uh, weighed in on final thoughts here, uh, and anybody else who thinks that uh, there were some things missing. But uh, any final thoughts, things that were missing, things you'd improve, or, or well, things going forward? Well, Public Health
3: England, like, uh, you know, England's leading the way it didn't make it into the documentary. That's a huge omission. It's like they have several reports that they've put out. It's 95% safer. At and least. that needed to, to be in there because you've, again, you've got all these knuckleheads in San Francisco who are saying things that are patently false about the effects of, of nicotine and, 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 and the safety. And so I think that was missing and just not understanding nicotine and, and hyping it up. Like it's this super addictive drug and it's destructive and we need to be afraid of it. And that wasn't countered enough for my, for my liking. Uh, The benefits are of nicotine are real and people can get unaddicted from, from nicotine. They do it all the time. people, uh, cut down on on the amounts that they use, and then they stop and that message is always missing, right? They never talk about the people who just stop i'm i'm done i I don't need this anymore for for whatever reason so i I feel like that England was missing, and then just how we understand nicotine stop getting hysterical about it. it's gonna be okay it's really gonna be okay nobody nobody dies. Um, from vaping, you know, going back to Greg, Greg's point, which I, I think is really important. Uh, and I just want to say, Greg, you were great in the documentary, and Michelle, you were wonderful too, your comment. It was so kind of funny and a little bit flip when you said something like, you know, what, what people are thinking about this, and books, and whatever, and, and even this documentary, you know, like, I, I'm sure you were both really concerned, like, how are they going to use what I'm saying, because as a filmmaker, I know how you can cut and paste and edit and make people look kind of different. But I thought you both were wonderful and I'm so glad you were both included.
2: Well, thank you, Helen. I always use, if it's a video, not live uh, documentary or, or video recording intended for editing, I always use the tactic that uh, has kept me strong for 12 years or so, where if you start a sentence and you could see it being edited in your mind in a bad way i would just say oh shit and i always waiting for the day where they make a documentary and then they have some montage of me going oh shit about 40 <laughs> times at the end that hasn't happened but that's usually my tactic and i always record if i'm doing a documentary just uh i would never ask for forgiveness but you definitely don't ask for permission um in terms of, uh, what was left out, it kind of covered it. I think the, as Helen said, the omission of England, if you don't, if you're talking about the respected public health people that were giving Jewel the ammo to go out and say, this product can change the world. If you're just referring back to, to, to 30 year old science, or I don't even know how they established in the documentary, how we know that nicotine isn't killing smokers. They certainly didn't talk about Sweden or Snus as well. Um, Bloomberg as well being left out, but at least they made the point that these are rich Manhattan mothers. Um, overall, I was pleased. I feared this for uh, two years as to what it would turn out to be. I think Netflix themselves were quite surprised with what they bought because uh, Netflix, if you're not aware, they uh, just kind of purchase a project. They give the fund the uh, like a negative pickup They fund it, and they're going to get all the rights, but they don't really have an executive team that's watching over the shoulders and saying, don't use that, don't do that. They're not that kind of traditional Hollywood studio. And so when the trailer came out, I think the trailer was likely edited by Netflix people. And I think Netflix, in part because of of the political pressure that is there regularly, every year, smoke-free movies at UCSF, does the ad can the, the, the full page ad campaigns. And then they get useful idiots at, at NBC or uh, AP or one or two other outlets to run that story saying smoking in movies is up 30 percent or and all the kids are seeing it and stranger things, a show about life in the 1980s should not have focused, should not have had any cigarette smoking. Um, they are, even though it seems minute and small, just ignore them to us that those type of pressure campaigns are always in the back of their mind. So I think that may have influenced how they edited that trailer, not just the the desire to do fear-mongering for viewers, because I don't think that ad was particularly effective because uh, we've, we're, we're at six years of fear-mongering, vaping's the worst thing ever kind of documentaries. Hell, two years ago, there were two that went up in the same year about Juul, including the Hulu New York Times one. Uh, But ultimately, uh, selfishly, it all comes back to me. And I was pleased with how they edited me. I was pleased that they animated me. I was pleased that I had a friend from high school send me a message saying that it was one o'clock in the morning and he woke up his wife and newborn baby by screaming out, that's Greg Conley. Um, So now that I have that, I just need to testify before the House, the Senate, and possibly a grand jury. I remember a, and I've been on C-SPAN. I remember a, a Steve Parrish from PM, well, formerly of Philip Morris, twenty years ago. He was on C-SPAN many years ago, and he said that like the the four pillars or whatever, the four things you achieve in Washington: C-SPAN, House and Senate testimony, and grand jury. So I've had C-SPAN. I'll add Netflix to the list. There's three more to go. Um, so can't wait, dude. You you got Trump.
3: <laughs> okay can i just say that
2: <laughs> uh I, there are a couple other people there's at least one person that deserves a little more credit than me on the trump issue but it was a joint effort and it was uh the most stress-filled crazy like uh three months of of my life and it's still nothing has approached the insanity of that since i think one day hopefully hopefully the fun is not completely uh on a downward tra- trajectory but um yeah, that, that's a whole adventure that will one day somebody will uh, will write about it.
1: Hey, maybe that's how you get your grand jury testimony.
2: Yeah. Yeah. All about hanging out at Mar-a-Lago not Mar-a-Lago. Jesus, the Trump Hotel in in uh, D.C., which for a brief period of time, that somehow became uh, the lobby of the White House.
0: Well, yeah. Um... I, I I think we're wrapping up unless I've uh, missed any other bits that you guys want to chime in on um, as far as what was missed or uh, what could be corrected. Uh, seeing none and giving an appropriate pause to see some, we'll move right to the outro. Uh, thank you guys for spending some time with us on a Monday to talk about this. Um, Greg and Michelle, thank you for your contributions to the film and, of course, the larger tobacco tobacco harm reduction conversation. Uh, And Helen, of course, uh, thank you for your your reviews and and all of your work uh, on the broader harm reduction uh, discussion. Uh, it was absolutely a privilege to have you guys on here today and talk. Um, I'm not going to go through the full list of all the, the, all the things we normally say. But if you would like more information about CASA, please visit our website, www.casaa.org. Www.casa, Sign up, become a member, uh, and you can even donate while you're there. Uh, we have a couple of things that are active right now, depending on what state you are in, uh, some federal stuff that we're watching. So make sure that you're you're signed up and you can get emails from us and we can get you engaged. Um, all of this is very important. Uh, and we'll be back actually on uh, this coming Saturday. Uh, we have another guest lined up and we'll be talking again about the perils of uh, Uh, over-enforcement and and illicit markets and so on. Uh, It should be a very good conversation with, uh, I believe, Diane Goldstein from LEAP, the Law Enforcement Action Project. Um, So looking forward to that conversation. Thank you again, everybody who tuned in to watch this live. Thank you, everybody on the replay crew. And with that, we'll send it to Kristen for the outro.